Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. Um, House Republicans accused Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Gary Gensler and his agency of hypocritically failing to comply with federal record-keeping and transparency laws that they impose on others. A letter signed by Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, Patrick Henry of North Carolina, James Comer of Kentucky, and Tom Emmer of Minnesota was sent to the SEC chair on November 2nd, accusing him of skirting federal transparency and record laws by failing to collect and provide records of official business conducted on social media and communications platforms such as Signal, WhatsApp, Microsoft Teams, and Zoom. Recent reports suggest the SEC, under your leadership, is failing to comply with federal record-keeping statutes. In particular, evidence uncovered during FOIA litigation suggests the SEC is failing to identify and produce records of official business conducted on non-email or off-channel platforms. Regardless of whether the communication took place on a personal or business device, the letter referred to an October 10th opinion column, the Wall Street Journal, by Washington attorney Chris Horner, alleging that SEC staffers were extensively using unauthorized public messaging platforms rather than official government email for official correspondences. It seems notable that so many government officials have personal accounts on the same encrypted messaging app as others in their agency, wrote Horner. It isn't difficult to identify officials' personal email accounts and cell phone numbers, the latter of which reveals if they have accounts on such apps as Signal or WhatsApp. From this, I know that at least a couple Biden White House climate officials, four current SEC appointees, and one recently departed SEC commissioner have personal signal accounts. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Oh, Americans shouldn't be able to use end-to-end encryption applications because our activity can't be monitored. And That interferes with their investigations. Meanwhile, while the SEC is failing to comply with federal transparency and record-keeping laws, the SEC is aggressively enforcing record-keeping laws on private businesses. After Gensler's agency recently charged 16 banking firms with $1.1 billion in fines for failing to maintain the same electronic communication standards for which they themselves fail to comply. The lawmakers noted that a recent SEC press release announced penalties against private sector businesses, emphasizing the importance of transparency. The SEC's September press release against the financial firms stated, Finance ultimately depends on trust. By failing to honor their record-keeping and books and records obligations, the market participants we have charged today have failed to maintain that trust. The SEC's Director of Enforcement similarly intoned that record-keeping requirements are sacrosanct. It's amazing to see how easily they demand of others that which they are not willing to do themselves. Hedge fund giant Elliott 
warns that looming hyperinflation could lead to global societal collapse. In a letter sent to investors, the Florida headquartered firm told clients that they believe the global economy is in an extremely challenging situation which could lead to hyperinflation. The firm led by billionaire Paul Singer and Jonathan Pollack told its clients that investors should not assume that they have seen everything because they have been through the peaks and troughs of the 1987 crash, the dot-com boom, and the 2008 global financial crisis, and previous bear and bull markets. They added that the extraordinary period of cheap money is coming to an end and has made possible a set of outcomes that would be at or beyond the boundaries of the entire post-World War II period. The letter said, The world is on the path to hyperinflation, which could lead to global societal collapse and civil or international strife. They estimated that markets have not fallen enough yet, and equity markets could drop more than 50% would be normal, adding that they couldn't predict when that would happen. The S&P 500 SPX is at negative 106, has dropped 19% from its peak at the beginning of the year. Elliott executives warned clients that the idea that we will not panic because we have seen this before does not comport with the current facts. They blamed central bank policymakers, that would be the Federal Reserve, for high inflation. For the global economic situation, saying that they had been dishonest about the reason for high inflation, they said that lawmakers had shirked responsibility by blaming it on supply chain disruption caused by the pandemic instead of loose monetary policy imposed two years ago during the COVID-19 peak. The hedge fund is posting 6.4% returns this year and has only lost money for two years in its 45-year history. The Department of Energy on Thursday said it sold 15 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to six companies, completing the last batch of the largest ever release from the stockpile announced by Biden in March. The contracts were awarded to Phillips 66, Marathon Petroleum Supply and Trading LLC, Shell Trading, Valero Marketing and Supply, Macari Commodities Trading, and Equinor Marketing and Trading. Deliveries will take place from December 1st to December 31st. Biden sold 180 million barrels from the oil of oil from the reserve to fight oil prices that had spiked on concerns about Russia's war on Ukraine. Stronger demand as global consumers emerged from the pandemic and US drillers struggling to first at first to boost output. Why were they struggling, I wonder? The oil price jump helped push U.S. inflation to the highest level in 40 years. The U.S. president announced a plan last month to begin refilling the stockpile when U.S. crude is around $70 a barrel, a level he said would allow drillers to profit while being a good deal for taxpayers. The U.S. benchmark was around $89 on Thursday. Can I get a a fact check on this shit? It's not a good deal for the taxpayers, regardless of what this administration says. Donald Trump tried to fill the SPR at $24 a barrel in 2020, but Democrats blocked the move, calling it a big oil bailout. But yes, please tell me how it's a good deal for the American taxpayers that you've depleted our reserves for that are supposed to be for emergencies 
and you're now buying it at $70 a barrel. The U.S. Treasury estimated that the 180 million barrel sale cut gasoline prices by about 40 cents per gallon compared to what they would have been absent the release. But the sale also bled the SPR, which meant to be a protection against shocks in energy markets, the lowest level since May of 1984. And it helped sour U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia, which sided with Russia in early October in a deep oil production cut. Biden said on October 19th, the United States is ready to tap the SPR again early next year to rein in prices. Oh, two more years. Two more years. If that. Twitter will be laying off staff members, it said, in an email obtained by NBC News. In the email sent Thursday evening, Twitter said it would notify staffers by email that their employment, about their employment. We recognize that this will impact a number of individuals who have made valuable contributions to Twitter, but this action is unfortunately necessary to ensure the company's success moving forward. It had been widely reported that Musk planned to slash the company's 7,500-person payroll after he finalized his $44 billion acquisition last week. He immediately dismissed Parag Agrawal, which is the CEO, as well as Twitter's chief financial officer and its head of legal. Public policy and trust and safety upon taking over the company. He wrote a $44 billion check for the company, overpaid for a bunch of people that don't want to work, and amenities that are frankly insane. A Twitter employee said in Thursday's email it was the first communication staff members had received from Twitter since the October 27th acquisition. Quote, it's total chaos, house melting down, everyone looking towards this email, the employee said. According to the email from Twitter, staff members will get notices one of two ways either through their company email accounts, if they still have a job, or their personal email accounts, if their employment is impacted. The company said staffing is being reduced in an effort to place Twitter on a healthy path. Can't blame the guy. Uh, The Brooklyn Nets are suspending Kyrie Irving for at least five games without pay, saying that they were dismayed by his failure to unequivocally say that he has no anti-Semitic beliefs. Hours after Irving refused to issue the apology that NBA Commissioner Adam Silver sought for posting a link to an anti-Semitic work on his Twitter feed, the Nets said that Irving is currently unfit to be associated with the Brooklyn Nets. We were dismayed today when given an opportunity in a media session that Kyrie refused to unequivocally say that he has no anti-Semitic beliefs nor acknowledge specific hateful material in the film. This was not the first time he had the opportunity, but failed to clarify. The Nets said in a statement that such failure to disavow anti-Semitism when given a clear opportunity to do so is deeply disturbing, is against the values of our organization, and constitutes conduct detrimental to the team. Accordingly, we are of the view that he is currently unfit to be associated with the Brooklyn Nets. Now, this is an interesting situation to me, and I wonder if somewhere in Irving's contract there is a clause that states he has to give up his First Amendment rights to be a player on the team, setting aside the idea of whether or not he is anti-Semitic, which I want to be clear, I think anti-Semitism is bad. He is entitled to express his opinion, and further, after having done so, I'm not sure how you compel speech from someone without it being extortion. 
say you don't agree with this or we will withhold your money. Again, I'm not saying that whatever he posted, which I still have no clue what it is. I don't know what this film or video or whatever is okay. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying anti-Semitism is okay. I'm merely curious if his contract says that he is not permitted to post certain things to his social media. And from what I understand, he didn't make this film. He just posted it to his Twitter and that he is required to disavow certain thought or content. Otherwise, he will not be paid. Is that a normal thing? I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts on this one because I'm a free speech absolutist. So I think he's entitled to the right to express himself and that no entity has the right to compel speech from someone. But I know that's a hard pill for many to swallow. And I'm curious contractually how this plays a role. Um, For the first time since 2016, the U.S. Center for Disease and Control and Prevention has updated its guidelines for clinicians and patients on the use of prescription opioids to treat short-term, long-term pain. The new guidelines from the CDC published yesterday include 12 recommendations for clinicians who are prescribing opioids for adults with acute pain lasting less than a month, subacute pain lasting one to three months, and chronic pain lasting more than three months. The update comes as drug overdose deaths have risen dramatically in recent years, although the majority of those deaths are now driven by illicit synthetic opioids, not prescription drugs. The guidelines shift away from more stringent 2016 guidelines around prescribing that some experts say led to unintended consequences for patients with pain. The update includes more focus on treating short-term acute and subacute pain, as well as more emphasis on clinicians and patients already receiving ongoing opioid therapy to work together to assess the risks and benefits of long-term opioid use. The guidelines recommend that clinicians should consider non-opioid therapies for many common types of acute pain, which is pain lasting for less than a month. The guidance is a B recommendation, meaning that it might not apply to all patients and decisions should be made based on the patient's circumstances. The guidelines also note that non-opioid therapies are preferred for subacute and chronic pain, which is pain lasting for more than a month. While the 2016 guidelines focused on recommendations for primary care physicians, the updated guidelines now expand to the scope to additional clinicians, noting that primary care doctors prescribe only about 37% of all opioid prescriptions, and other clinicians account for considerable proportions of prescriptions, such as pain medicine doctors, they prescribe 8.9%, dentists prescribe 8.6%. Pain medicine and physical medicine and rehabilitation clinicians prescribe opioids at the highest rates, followed by orthopedic and family medicine clinicians. Thus, expanding the scope to outpatient opioid prescribing can provide evidence-based advice for many additional clinicians, including dentists and other oral oral health providers, clinicians managing post-operative pain in outpatients, and clinicians providing pain management for patients being discharged from emergency departments. The new guidelines also highlight how black and brown patients living with pain are less likely than white patients to receive the pain treatments they may need. We've tried to infuse principles around equity, 
and disparities and pain care, in particular around communities of color throughout the guideline. Thinking about populations, taking into account cultural language barriers and other aspects of pain care will be important as we continue to develop those resources. The American Pharmacists Association applauded the CDC's update in a statement on Thursday calling it a significant improvement over the stringent 2016 guidelines. Ideally, new recommendations should result in greater and more equitable access to the full range of evidence-based treatments for pain, more judicious initial use of opioids, and more careful consideration and management of benefits and risks associated with continuing, tapering, or discontinuing opioids in patients who are already receiving them long-term. Dow and her colleagues wrote in the paper, evidence to guide the best achievable pain management remains limited, and research should address critical remaining gaps, including long-term comparative effectiveness of therapies for pain. Patient-clinician communication about benefits and risks associated with opioids remains central to treatment decisions. I personally feel like this is going to have some pretty extremely negative consequences, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Maybe lessening the restrictions to such a highly addictive drug is a good idea. It may ruin lives, but now it's equitable, and it will ruin black and brown lives too. That is your Friday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. We will be live this evening at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Twitter Spaces for Liberty Happy Hour. Please join us there. If not, I will see you on Monday. You guys take care and have a great weekend. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.